I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. And we are mad as hell, and we are not going to take it anymore. We are here at 15-Minute Film Fanatics. You know how this works. This week, we are doing Sidney Lumet's great, great 1976 film written by Patty Chavsky, Network. This was a Mike pick. Mike, first impressions, overall impressions, go. There's uh, a story that may be apocryphal from Hollywood that uh, the script of Unforgiven, when it finally fell into Clint Eastwood's hands, and he filmed it, that his... Um, his script handler, basically the person who made sure that they were following the script, said that like he used to mark mark them all up except Unforgiven. He just shot it as it as it was. Uh, and I've never I, I've always liked that story. I like that movie, but I never believed it. This is the only film, literally the only film, where you could tell me that they took a finished document, they took a screenplay, and they put it in somebody's hands and they shot it. But Patty Chayefsky was there on the set every single day, making sure that they did not deviate one jot from his, from his screenplay, uh, you know, with, with very, very minor alterations, because this film on paper is perfect. Every scene is perfect. And how they coaxed these wonderful, brilliant performances from uh, incredible actors is, is beyond me. Sidney Lumet, this is clearly the greatest film that he uh, ever did or was involved with, and I'll stand by this. Um, if you have not seen Network and you're just listening to the podcast, pause this episode, go rent Network right now. It is the best $3 you will spend this week. 100%. Um, it's the kind of film that every time you watch it, you say, why haven't I watched this three more times this week? And yeah. it's and it, because the performances are so good and it's so strong. And it, you, that's a great point you made that it is strong on paper. You could actually read this film in a way that would give you as much pleasure as, as reading um, like, you know, a, a great novel or a great story. Something that struck me is the, is the line by Vladimir Nabokov says somewhere, um, satire is a lesson and parody is a game. Right. So when you think about the way this film is, right, you know, the, the satire of network, the lesson of network doesn't even need to be made to us now because we completely accept all the arguments of the film. We don't even, you know, the poster, I was looking on IMDb at the posters because I love to do that. The poster says, prepare yourself for a perfectly outrageous motion picture. And the film is outrageous in terms of how, how beautiful it is and how great the actors are. But in terms of what it actually implies about the way TV works, that's not outrageous to us at all now. And that's not a knock against this brilliant movie. It's because we've come to live in the world that Howard Beale describes. And we accept what Howard Beale said so fully that what he says almost isn't even shocking to us anymore. It, it, is, it is prophecy. Um, if, you like the, if, if you like the novel, uh, A Handful of Dust by Evelyn Waugh, it has the form of a satire, but it has the structure of a tragedy because there's no, le there's no lessons that can be conceivably learned. There's no changes that could be conceivably made. If you get why it's funny, all is already lost. And that's exactly the structure of network. Yeah, when Faye Dunaway gets the raw footage of the bank robbery and they're gonna use it for the Mao Zedong hour and she's like, this is unbelievable. Like her audacity and putting that, that, that is the news now. Raw footage is, it's all over the internet. It's all over the news. I mean, that is the world in which we live. So it's kind of funny how the, the prophecy has absolutely come true. I mean, everybody loves to, everybody of every political stripe loves to claim Orwell as their prophet, right? So people on the left say Orwell speaks for us. People on the right say Orwell speaks for us. I think everybody, regardless of who you are, can watch Network and say, oh my God, like we're living in the world that this movie describes. And I do love Orwell as much as the next person, but Orwell is a coin flip compared to Patty Kayevsky. What do you mean by that? Uh, Orwell is 50-50 on his predictions. Kayevsky is uh, batting a thousand. 
So what's something in the film that you think makes, makes him get that batting average? So for example, the entire structure of the show where you're going to have uh, the fortune teller uh, tell you what the, what the market's going to do. Uh, and then they have the, um, God, it's so great that they call it the Vox Populi. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's so good. And then uh, Beale comes out and must make his witness um, every week. It doesn't actually matter what side of any issue you're on. This is, this is an arms race exactly like the nuclear arms race, because if one side appears to care more, it's, it's obvious that, that they're right or something is going terribly unnoticed such that somebody has to cry about it. And that's what makes good TV. That's what makes a good uh, podcast. That's what makes a good tweet. And one of the things that, that the film is prophetic about in a way that even Padachevsky and Sidney Lumet couldn't have even anticipated, a line that made my mouth drop open when I watched it for the podcast is when Faye Dunaway says, I want angry shows. I want someone that, to articulate their anger for them. And, and you think about it, anger is such, a, a, is such fuel now for, for all, all kinds of stuff we see on the internet, all kinds of news, right? I mean, anger is the commodity into which um, net, uh, networks now and websites want to tap into. But, but, and before we step into our moments, it's worth saying that the, the value, of, we've been talking about the prophecy of this film, but the value is not in the, in the prophecy. The value is in, if, I, if you went back in a time machine and told somebody in 1976 what 2021 was like, uh, they could not have wrapped it in such beautiful, angry language. The, one of the jokes about art is you ask, what's, what's the real impetus for art? And it's typically revenge. It's that t- people that write, that write art or make art are uh, outsiders. They're, they're attacking. Patty Kayevsky was certainly an outsider in television after having made his name here. And the impetus for this is revenge, but it is the most beautiful, sweet revenge that has ever been caught on film. He eviscerated the people that annoyed him and kicked him out of the television industry, such that the joke about this movie is it, um, at, the, at the Oscars, all the CBS people that attended said that it was clearly about NBC. All the NBC people said it was clearly about ABC. All the ABC people said that it was about NBC. And everybody's pointing the finger at one another for being the network that's being uh, satirized in network, but they're all the network. That's, that's excellent. And another thing, you mentioned this in, in the beginning about the performances. Not only is this, you know, satire is a lesson. Not only is it beautifully done satire, not only is it prophetic, but it does so with, with unbelievably great performances and believable human beings. Like you completely believe in what Max is, is, is going through. You completely no. believe in, 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 in what Peter Finch is doing. Nobody is a caricature. Everybody is a flamethrower. Literally, they open their mouth and this, these word flames come out. Uh, and again, nobody else besides Patty Kayevsky could have written this. It all works. It's so moving on paper. And then to get it in the mouth of somebody like Peter Finch, who is literally dying, giving his performance, collapsing on the set, uh, is, is utterly moving, I think. Because 1984 and Brave New World, you know, those are great prophecies. Those are great books. They're not great novels in terms of like, you know, capturing human experience. They're, they're great books in, in different ways than, than say a great novel would be like, like Bleak House or something. But I think this film has it both ways. It, it's so rare because, because the satire works so well, but there's no expense in terms of how the characters are created and, and how, how bad you feel for Max's wife when she gives him that speech. I won't let you go easily, Max. Or, 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 how, or um, how great Robert Duvall is. Like you totally believe in them as human beings rather than points of view. And I, I think it's even 
more rare that this movie actually did get the recognition it deserves. I have a rhetorical question for you in part three that we'll, that we'll get to, which is why, if this movie is so great, is it not as well known? Because this movie is, uh, is of a piece with something like The Godfather or any of the classic movies that we've already covered that came out uh, up until this point. But people know that The Godfather is classic cinema, even if they haven't seen it, they might not know about Network. All right, I'll see you in part two. Okay, welcome back. So in part two, we like to talk about our favorite moments or the most indicative moments of the themes of the film as a whole. Uh, Dan, go. Mike, you said before that people speak in this film and they, they, they have, they're like flamethrowers, right? When I watched it for the podcast, I started to make a list of all the great monologues. And this film has so many great monologues. I mean, one after another after another. And not just the Peter Finch ones. Everybody gets great monologues. Every actor gets to show off in this film. So it was very hard for me to pick my moment. And I thought to myself, this film is so great you could literally pick any random thing in the film. Just the way um, Mike and I, we, we have this joke about the random page test. A great book, you could pick up a book at random page before you go to sleep, it's great. So what I did was, the movie's 122 minutes long. I went to my son and I said, give me three random numbers between one and 122. And these are the three numbers he gave me. And I went to those minutes in the film just to show you that the random film test works for this. The first number he said was two. The second minute of the film is Max's suicide joke. Don't do it, buddy. You're st you still have your whole life ahead of you. That's a perfect representative moment because it's the whole sense of humor of the film, how dark it is. Then Peter Finch says he's really going to kill himself, right? The next number my son said was 67. That's when Howard does his eulogy for George Ruddy and then collapses, right? And he says, you know, um, you know, the tube's the most awesome goddamn propaganda force in the whole godless world. And woe is us if it ever falls in the hands of the wrong people. I mean, that's exactly what we're worrying about now. It's, when people talk about Fang and big tech, you know, F Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, right? Woe to us if it falls in the wrong hands. That's going on right now as we record. People are worried about that. And the last thing is, the number I got was 83. And that is when Diane is at the shareholders meeting when everyone's chanting, we're number one. And she's just beaming because she, of course, is TV, is the media, you know, incarnate. So it's funny that a film this good, you could can, you can literally pick three random numbers and get three moments. So I went long on that, Mike. Anything you want to say about those or what's yours? Uh, I'll, go to, I'll go to mine, which is how the movie treats great moments because it's, it's, it's not just about the delivery by the character, it's how it's received by the other characters. So here's one moment apparently that changed in the screenplay, which is um, Howard Beale has his, he has his religious experience on his friend's couch and gets up and escapes in the middle of the night in his pajamas and in the rain. And he walks to the network and he bursts through the doors and he's walking past the guard and the guard says, good afternoon, Mr. Beale. And he says, I must make my witness. And the guard was supposed to give him a look, but as they were shooting the film, they thought, well, it's network television. So it's not that weird that the guy is, you know, walking in soaking wet in his, these are all, it's, 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 it's an enterprise built on eccentricity. And so what the guard actually says, or the doorman actually says at the door, when he says, I must make my witnesses, sure thing, Mr. Beale, just as he, as he walks along. And I think that that treatment of eccentricity in the film as accepted by other characters is, what, is part of what makes this movie great. Uh, because it's not, there are certain movies that wanna draw attention to how over the top they are because they think that that is what attracts the audience or gets the reaction out of the audience. Um, in this movie, it's brilliant performances as accepted by other characters who don't know, who are either responding naturally or don't know how to respond naturally. It's, you know, when, when your wife says, 
uh, I love you. Um, is that really all I get? Like I, I've done everything for you for 35 years and now you're, now you're going to leave me. That's, that's all I get. And he, he says, I don't know what to say to you. And then that's what Diana says back to him. He says, I just want you to love me with all my, my doubts and all. And she says, I'm not sure how to do that. I'm, I, I don't know how to do that, which is so much better than some snarky response or some witty response or even no response because it is the truth. And sure thing, Mr. Beale is the truth. It could be an alternate, it could be an alternate title for the film because that's how we take it. No matter how many times you watch this movie, you and I have said that, you know, a, a great movie is um, no bad scenes and three great scenes. Howard Hawks said that, yeah. But this is, ones, yeah. this is every, scene, every is, scene is great. Every scene is great. And not only is every scene great, but um, you, you, you talked before about the film calling attention to itself, right? The film constantly calls attention to itself. You know, the old phrase, if it bleeds, it leads. The film does everything it, it satirizes, right? It's, it's got a murder. It's got bank robberies. It's got guns. It's got sex. It's got adultery, conflict. It's, it's not about the dullness of day-to-day -day TV right? It's, it's, it's packaged in a way where even um, William Holden keeps talking about the script I'm in and, and how is this scene going to end? So you have unbelievable actors talking about themselves in a work of drama, right? And, and saying, and it still doesn't make it cute. It still doesn't make it snarky. It doesn't make it meta. Your, your stomach still hurts when William Holden is stone-faced and his wife is saying, this is what I get. Your stomach still hurts. You, um, you still chuckle when Robert Duvall is like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to strangle him with a sash cord because you can't believe how angry he is. So you respond to these people in, in a way that you respond to the best well-drawn characters in literature. By the way, how did nobody else use Robert Duvall in that, in that way before or since? Because he's, he's played some great parts, but they tend to be understated. He's, he tends to play the adult in the room, which is funny because in this movie, he plays the child playing the adult in the room. 100%. So welcome back. In part three, we'd like to talk about the ending of the film. This film certainly has a terrific ending or the title. Mike, I want to start by asking a question about, about Howard Beale overall and what you think about this. So you can watch this film now and say, well, clearly Howard Beale is supposed to be like someone like Donald Trump, someone who's articulating anger. You could say he's like, you know, Bill O'Reilly, but you could also say he's Howard Stern. You could also say he's like Bill Maher. I mean, I think, I think you can plug a lot of different people into Howard Beale. So how do you, how do you, in, 2021 respond to that question like who is Howard Beale now he's Jeremiah I think he's beyond uh, modern uh talking heads or personalities or political figures or or entertainment figures and some something else has been tapped into which is kind of the the, the song of woe that sits at like the heart of western literature you know it, it's it's biblical and I think that that's why um that's why it's both beautiful and these speeches work on paper, um, but they certainly work out of, the, out of the mouth of a prophet. I don't think anybody in a Cecil B. DeMille movie buys Charlton Heston as Moses, but I buy Peter Finch as Moses. I buy Peter Finch as the Old Testament incarnate. And it, it's, there's something much deeper than just modern recent entertainment going on here. And just as, that's great, Mike, because just as biblical scholars will talk about you know, things in the Old Testament as, you know, as, as um, you know, 
foreshadowing things in the New Testament, right? Here, you could watch what Howard Beale says about television and just, and just push it forward to talk about iPhones. I mean, it's, it's, it's perfect about, about Facebook and things like that. I want to read you something really quickly. This is what Howard says. And think about how this has to do with, with our phones today, right? He says, television is not the truth. Television is a goddamn amusement park. Television is a circus, a carnival, a traveling troupe of acrobats, storytellers, dancers, singers, jugglers, sideshow freaks, lion tamers, and football players. We're in the boredom killing business. And, he, and then he also talks about how, you know, less than 15% of you read newspapers, you know, uh, less than 3% of you read books. So if you substitute, you know, Facebook or Twitter or Instagram for television, then it, he is like you said, Moses. Yeah, but you substitute it for the golden calf, substitute it for the, the chariot races, substitute right. it for uh, anything else, substitute it for uh, the, the traveling circus, substitute it for the radio, which everyone thought was going to kill the book, substitute it you know, back for television, which is what it's supposed to be. And it, and it continually works. The point is that there's, for, for all of our beauty, for our, for our ability as humans to write that speech and see an actor deliver it and to be moved, there's something wrong with us. And there's someone screaming at the center of civilization saying, there's something wrong with us. And we respond to that message. And that's what I mean by, by Old Testament, but it, it's so corny out of the mouth of somebody that doesn't care, but out of the mouth of Peter Finch, again, dying while he was giving those performances, it, it matters and it means something. And, and the words written by Patty Kayevsky mean something. Because also what Howard Beale says is not crazy. No, that's why he's killed. So what Howard Beale says has a lot of truth, regardless of, who, of, of where you stand politically, where you are culturally. I, and I, I only want to quibble with people. People didn't get tired of, of hearing it. The people in power were losing money. This was a cost benefit analysis between getting caught and losing $12 million, which is the same as this guy's going to steal $12 million from us. What are we going to do to stop it? He's the, the narrator says he's the only man in, the, in history killed because of poor ratings. Let's talk about the scene where they, where they decide to, to kill him. So, of course, the joke of that scene is that the, the figurative, we're going to kill the show, where, you know, the figurative becomes literal. And they, they move very, very s slowly and beautifully into a discussion about mur actually murdering him. What do you love about that scene? Well, first, there's a, there's a trick with the lighting going on uh, in this movie, which is that the light becomes less and less natural over the course of the film from uh, actual daylight scenes to films that are only taking place um, within the studio. The strange lighting, of course, in the library scene that everybody remembers with um, Ned Beatty giving his uh, immortal monologue. And, and it's, it's one of those moments where the structure of the film in terms of the lighting, in terms of the mood, in terms of the actors are literally closing in on you. And you mentioned Nabokov one trick between uh, both Nabokov and of course a like classic Hitchcock movie is to make the guilt of the viewer implicit in the guilt of what's going on on screen. Meaning if, if you've enjoyed this movie, if you've been following this movie, then you are also guilty of the murder uh, of Howard Beale, which is, which is how it feels to be part of their circle or part of their cabal. And in fact, they, um, you can imagine a murder scene with just um, with just Faye Dunaway's character um, and, a, and a few other characters all talking, but there's some silent people in the room who say nothing. And, and the viewer is meant to be one of those people that say nothing. Is your implication then that, you know, we love network, we, we buy its premise, we nod along with it, but then we pick up our phones? Well, Howard Beale's also, there's a joke at the end of the film, which is he's not the only person killed for low readings. 
Um, you know, I can think of somebody like roughly 20, 2021 years ago was killed for low ratings, or you can think of somebody um, within 40 or 50 years ago that was killed because of low ratings, or you can think of either of the Kennedys who were killed for low ratings. Like there's, there's, there's some things uh, going on with Howard Beale, again, that I think that transcend politics and get into, um, get into the, the overall problems with humanity. Which, which is what? We crave to be challenged, but we will only take it uh, for so long. Um, there's a quote, I forget exactly exactly who, but it's, um, they love the truth when it reveals itself and hate it when it reveals them. <laughs> right. And that is what is, that's what's at the center uh, of this movie. We love the truth when it reveals itself, but we hate it when it reveals us. And in order to get it to stop revealing us, uh, we're willing to, to commit acts of violence. Which is why when they scream out the window, and when they scream in the studio audience, we're mad as hell. We're gonna, you know, it's I'm mad at somebody else. There's a there's an outside force that I'm mad at, and I'm mad as hell, and I'm not gonna take it from this outside force anymore. But people don't want to think about the outside force being themselves. Well, the the reason that it the reason that it transcends any particular issue in the way that the film handles it is that Howard Beale changes his message um, between three quarters and eighty five percent of the way through the film, which is he's he's essentially he becomes a convert to whatever Ned Beatty's uh, philosophy is, but he delivers it just as passionately, which means, again, there, there's, something, there's something wrong with us and it could be thing A and on Tuesday I could tell you it's thing B and on Wednesday I could go back to thing A and then on Thursday I could tell you it's thing C. But the, the central message that there's something wrong with us is one that we accept and it, and it gets our attention. This is essentially Lord of the Flies territory. You know, this is, this is into the central crack that runs down humanity this is um he ain't fixed right but in but in a movie and so it's it's not just about television or politics it's it's way past television or politics yeah we are not fixed right right which is why network speaks to us so well so it's funny we talk about howard beale articulating people's anger and i think we see that a lot today like whatever you know whatever cable news show you might watch you know you're invited to be angry at the people watching another channel the way that twitter works the way that facebook works is that it's it's anger porn and that that can get a lot of clicks that can get a lot of ratings but the thing that howard wants them to do is say it, it's not about that you have to be introspective um, TV and the internet does not encourage you to read. It doesn't encourage you to say, well, should I be angry at someone else or should I look at myself? The failure of Howard Beale is that the group listening to him preach has self-selected itself as the group that will never improve. Because they, they see themselves as not part of the problem? Because if you're sitting there watching him night after night, you're obviously not part of the group that are going to take the actions that he's preaching. Whereas if, if you're not listening to him, you might be in a very, in a vast small minority of people that are already doing it and, and therefore have no need of it. And that's why he says, turn it off. Turn off your set right now. Turn the thing off, which of course is anathema. You can never, you never want to, you, anyone to change a channel if you run a network, right? But Howard is on the very medium that he's attacking and tells him not to watch it. If you don't need Howard Beale, you won't even know who he is because you don't have a TV. All right, that was great. So thanks for listening, everybody. We hope you enjoyed our conversation about network. Go watch it again. Please follow us on Twitter at, and we feel very strange plugging Twitter here in our conversation about network, but please come on to our Twitter feed at 15MINFilm. Follow us, subscribe, leave us comments, tell us what you want to see. Thanks for listening. We just, uh, we just ran out of bullshit. <laughs> <laughs>